Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing is not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey folks, hey, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. We really appreciate the opportunity to, to have you join us again today. Uh, my guest today is, uh, is Mark Stebnicki. Mark, uh, Mark and I have uh, met, uh, I think, March of last year, and, and uh, uh, it's, it was uh, really impressive, sort of the, the take on, on what he's looking at, veteran mental health. And so I wanted to go ahead and bring him on and talk about some of the stuff that he's done. Uh, so Mark is a, a professor and coordinator of the Military and Trauma Counseling Certificate Program that he developed with the Department of Addictions and Rehabilitation with uh, Eastern Carolina University. He holds a do- doctorate and a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling from Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Dr. Stebnicki is a licensed professional counselor in North Carolina, holds four certifications. He's an active teacher, researcher, and practitioner with over 30 years experience working with the mental health and psychosocial rehabilitation needs of persons with chronic illnesses, disabilities, and traumatic stress. He's written eight books, uh, which uh, definitely want to get into that, over 28 articles in peer-reviewed journals presented at over 100 regional, state, and national conferences, seminars, workshops on topics ranging from youth violence, traumatic stress, empathy fatigue, military counseling, and the psychosocial aspects of adults with chronic illnesses and disabilities. That's uh, it's quite a mouthful, Mark. But uh, anything it, it to is. add there? It, well, it took thirty years to do that. Yeah, you know, it, you'd it, think, it, right? <laughs> it, you know, you can't do that overnight. But uh, yeah, so no, I great introduction. Thank you. Yeah, thank absolutely. you for having me. So uh, before we get into to what you're doing, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about yourself, maybe anything that, uh, that wasn't in sort of the academic thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I, Dwayne, I didn't start off in academia. I actually started off uh, 
working in residential treatment facilities for uh, people with uh, substance abuse issues, uh, people that had psychiatric disabilities. You know, back in the 70s, they started emptying out all the uh, uh, psych wards, and they were just full of veterans, okay? And uh, so, you know, they, they, due to federal law, they had to put them in uh, some institutions. So I started working with people with uh, psychiatric disabilities, writing behavioral programs. Uh, I've worked, uh, again, in, in residential treatment facilities with substance abuse, uh, worked uh, at Bethesda Hospital in St. Louis on a TBI unit, and uh, also worked for a Guardianship and Advocacy Commission, uh, being an advocate for uh, people with uh, illness and disability. And then uh, I, every place I was in, everybody had a higher degree than me, and for mm-hmm. me to progress in the field. Uh, I happen to live in the same town as uh, uh, SIU, which had a really great PhD program at the time. So, you know, I, I went into that. And uh, so, so I went into academia actually in 1995, you know, about 12, 15 years into my uh, career, a real job. But, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've maintained a small uh, psychotherapy practice throughout academia. And the, the reason being is that, you know, I've really appreciated having professors, and, and I'm sure you can agree with this, having professors that had some real-world experience. And, uh, you know, in today's uh, counselor ed programs, many of them maybe had one or two years' experience because they went straight through in their bachelor, master's, and Ph.D. and all that. So uh, I've, I've always uh, wanted to maintain, you know, a practice uh, along with academia. So I was fortunate to be able to do that. So, Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's really interesting. I, I was having a, a conversation with a, a group of veterans that I was talking to recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had met for breakfast, and, and some of them are going through education, not, not as far as uh, counselor, but that was one of their points was uh, one of their, all of their professors are younger than them and, and, and a <laughs> lack of really kind of um, yeah. you know, lived experience. Um, and, and I know that I value that in, in my uh, graduate program. Uh, all of my professors were maintaining a private practice on the side, you know, so they were still practicing or practicing um, uh-huh. as clinicians um, while they were actually um, you know, teaching as well. And, and I, mm-hmm. I think that's important, you know, just to, to kind of keep the hand in. So it's not all just theoretical, right? It, exactly. I mean, you got to gr- bridge the gap between classroom teaching and, and real world, you know. In other words, maintaining your CAQH, uh, uh, you know, web page, keeping, uh, getting on as many insurance panels as you can, and getting extra certifications and training, you know, uh, those kind of things. So, so that's a, a pretty kind of a, a long route in, in continuing uh, to practice. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear. Uh, I, I saw a lot of your books. Uh, you did a lot with adolescents, and you did some stuff. Um, with uh, with empathy and, and even um, you know for for mental health professionals, self care and caring for themselves. Um, mm-hmm. How did you get into veteran mental health with with what you're doing now? Well, you know when when you talk about working with veterans, they have uh, mental and physical disabilities basically, and that's sort of where I started my career working with you know people with that had physical and mental injuries. So. Uh, you know, I, and I also taught, uh, you know, the uh, psychosocial medical aspects courses, the vocational aspects. So 
uh, you know, my, my dad was an Army vet. I had four uncles that were Army, Navy, Marines. I had a, two cousins, uh, Marines and and Navy, and all the Marines in the family let everyone know they were Marines. <laughs> yeah. And and my, my father-in-law, uh, you know, he was in the Army. He drove a tank. Uh, you know, he used to talk to, to me the things he wouldn't talk about with his daughters, you know, about uh, uh, his combat experience and so forth. So, you know... It, it just seemed like a natural fit. And all my years, I look back, there, there were always vets that I was working with. But, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, we weren't really tuning into vet services. We were just treating people that had, you know, brain injury, amputation. And, you know, the, the thought of, uh, you know, war never came up, you know. So it, it made sense to me to, uh, to go ahead and, you know, try to translate the differences between military mental health and civilian mental health. And, you know, there, there, there's a lot of differences when, and people I think are really jumping on that now is they're realizing, Hey, this is a totally different culture to work with. So, you know, you know, two rules for a gunfight, Dwayne, don't you bring a gun, bring all your friends with guns. Yeah, that's true. And, <laughs> yeah. And you know, that, that's just part of the culture. The, um, and, what what I try to do with my uh, my certificate training uh, is is you know try to translate uh, committee mental health civilian mental health to to uh, veteran mental health or active duty mental health. So uh, you know I've I've also been I am a Tricare provider, uh, military uh, certain military one source provider. So I've worked with active duty uh, Marines. Uh, I live about an hour from Camp Lejeune. Uh, they used to call it Lejeune, but now it's Lejeune. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, the family uh, family name is Cajun. So uh, I think the family, after about 40 years, they said, hey, you know, you guys are pronouncing our name wrong. It's, 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 just, it's Lejeune. Just you know. Yeah, just to let you know. So, uh, you know, I, I guess in, in my practical experiences, I'm, it was like a wow moment. Like, yeah, you know. Uh, veterans and active duty service members and veterans with disabilities, it, it's a totally different culture. And, uh, you know, one example uh, that I, I try to convey to people when I do workshops is that, you know, trauma in civilian populations are different than uh, trauma experienced with uh, active duty or vets. And one way is that, you know, think about being a, uh, a civilian and having a gun stuck in your face or hearing shots fire. So, you know, the natural tendency is to run, detach, isolate. Okay. So, you know, generally in veteran, uh, veterans don't do that. They run towards guns. Exactly. Okay. And they, their sympathetic, parasympathetic response is trained in basic training to be able to respond to, uh, uh, to highly critical situations because, you know, the life and safety of your unit buddy is, is dependent on your quick and decisive action on the battlefield. You don't have time to cut and run and to freeze up. So, you know, military, a, a simple way to put it is military uh, aggress, not stress, where civilians, they detach, they isolate, and they run. So, you know, you got to ask yourself, well, why is that? What's different? And so how, how's trauma experience different? You know, well, you know, you look at the research and you say, well, 
you know, six up to 60% of researchers will say that people who've experienced even low and moderate levels of combat come back with PTSD. So you got to ask yourself, well, what about the other 40%, 50%? Why don't they experience PTSD? So, uh, Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, maybe, with some of the questions, and I'm not, I'm not but, sure if you... I'm, go ahead. No, that's, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of good stuff to unpack there, even going as, as far back as you said in the, the, the 80s and, and even the early mm-hmm. 90s, where you were working with veterans, but they were just in the general population. There weren't any veteran-specific yep. programs. Exactly. And, and did you see, you said the difference between military mental health and civilian mental health, even just maybe the military mindset and civilian mindset, but from a practitioner standpoint, how did you see the differences manifest themselves back then? Well, you know, uh, what, what I saw is that we didn't really talk about combat. That was, that was a taboo subject to go near, you know, uh, there were, there were some proud war fighters, but, uh, the fact that they didn't bring it up, then it didn't seem relevant. Okay. But, you know, the basis for uh, some of the anxiety, depression, substance use, the ideology of it was their combat experience. So right. uh, that, that wasn't really a topic for discussion. Uh, you know, I learned uh, to address the, uh, the dis- disabling condition. Uh, you know, that, that was the, maybe the, uh, you know, how to uh, psychosocially adjust and, and how to transition. But, you know, it, it, it seemed like after, uh, after 2001, uh, then people really started taking notice of mental health issues. And you could call it, well, suicide, sure, but, you know, what was different? And I, I think things changed socially is that uh, people, uh, I think the general public looked at vets as, wow, you know, these guys are really uh, unique individuals. And, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're, uh, we ought to be proud of them and support them. So whereas, as you know, in Vietnam era, you know, uh, that wasn't the case. You know, they came back as, you know, and were perceived very negatively as baby killers and, and, and so forth and didn't get the treatment that they deserved. Yeah, I think it's very interesting with the, the different eras. Um, I, I had the honor of working when I was a recruiter outside of Fort Meade. I had the honor of working with uh, a Korean War veteran. Um, uh-huh. that, and he, uh, um, he called himself the old, he was an old retired Sergeant Major, but he had been uh-huh. in Korea, he had been in Vietnam, and he had been mm-hmm. remobilized um, for the Gulf War to do some things there at Dover Air Force Base. Um, and and he and I had a lot of conversations about, of course, you know, the difference between Korea and then Vietnam. But then there was uh-huh. that wide space of those Cold War veterans that, mm-hmm. yeah, to be honest, there were the, the, the military even now is an inherently dangerous occupation. But even back then in the 80s, you know, there was no safety officers or things like that. And so there were, you know, training accidents and things like that. But yeah. and even, you know, before I came in the military, the Gulf War. But it really didn't last very long. It didn't really impact people. And so now with these last 17 years, there's a greater number yeah. of people uh, and veterans of my era, the, the post 9-11 veterans, are, are, are now reaping the benefits of the Vietnam veterans saying, hey, we need to talk about this stuff. Don't wait until we're, you know, 20, 30 years after to deal with it. Exactly. And, you know, I've seen more and more Vietnam vets wearing their, their hats and their 
their jackets with her patches. They're in. They're ver- they're very proud now. I I I think it's got a lot of, uh, you know, therapeutic uh, relevance to it. Is is when people in your environment can recognize, you know, the job that you've done for the country, uh, you, you get positive messages. You know, uh, you get positive message from your family, from your employers, and people are now just starting to understand is that wow, that's a tough job. You know, uh, wh- what where else can you go? You know. A uh, 24-hour notice, uh, <laughs> uh, constant geographic relocations. Uh, you know, avoid being killed, uh, having to kill, uh, having to save uh, unit buddies in, in crisis situations. So, uh, people are starting to realize the tough job that uh, the military's done throughout. I I think throughout history. And I think that's, you know, you talk about the stress on the individual, but also the stress on the family. You do a lot of work with uh, adolescents and and, uh, uh, and teens and things like that. Um, I was having a conversation with my son a couple months ago. Both my kids were born in Germany. Uh, but if, if somebody were to ask me where I was from, I'm actually from St. Louis. I mean, you mentioned uh, you had worked in St. Louis, but, you yeah. know, I have some place that I'm from. I've got, you know, roots. My wife is from Knoxville, Tennessee. But uh-huh. I asked my son, I was like, if anybody asked you where you would be from, what would you say? And he was like, well, I was born in Germany, but that doesn't count. And mm-hmm. we lived in Maryland when I was a kid, but I don't really remember that. But I'm not really from Colorado. And and so you have, and everybody talks about military brats, but it's really sort of an ungrounded, the family is ungrounded. The spouses mm-hmm. are separated. That's that's a different aspect that not a lot of people are familiar with. Yeah, spouses, spouses really have it rough. And, uh, you know, luckily... Uh, in this war now, they place a lot of emphasis on the family, uh, the FRO, the Family Readiness Officer, so they can, they can help uh, with communication, uh, work with spouses, uh, try to hook them up with some uh, some needs because, uh, and we we tend to think female are all the spouses, but there's male spouses right. too, where and uh, and so the the population uh, in in the cultures is different too, and and. You know, the uh, military used to recognize the uh, LGB. Now it's LGBT, and now now it's not T anymore. Yeah. So, right. uh, and so that, that there's, uh, there's an ever-changing dynamic in the family because, you know, you have the, uh, uh, you, you have uh, gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual uh, uh, vets and active duty members, and so... The, the family dynamics is, is totally different. So working in with today's vets, you sort of have to be open to, wow, you know, vets are really a cross section of society, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I've in, uh, in my my first uh, roommate, a really good friend, he and I served together both in Germany and uh, um, and in, in the 82nd for our second tours. Uh, he was from Hilo, Hawaii. There would, you know, there there was no way that a, a guy from the Midwest and you know, I never yeah. would have met anybody from Hawaii. He never, if he never would have left, you know, there's the whole idea of uh, you know a, a white kid from California being best friends with a, a black kid from Alabama, kind of thing. And there is, yeah. it really is a a, a cross cultural, uh, probably mm-hmm. a lot more than most people think. Um, but then it it has its own culture imposed over the top of it. And you had mentioned that before is is the military being considered a separate culture? Yeah. I'd like to hear more about that from your viewpoint. Sure. Uh, well, you know, I, I taught a course called Multicultural Counseling, and I noticed, uh, I did that for many years, I noticed the last few years I taught the course, 
the textbook writers would put a whole chapter in there on, on counseling military. So I thought, wow, okay, so people are really starting to recognize this. It, you know, uh, what, it, what is a culture? Well, a culture is, you know, somebody that has their own language, their own uh, rituals, their own organization, their own kind of family structure and, and so forth. So, you know, certainly, uh, uh, you know, military has that. And then you talk about Army, Navy, Marines, you know, Coast Guard. And you know, I think society just kind of lumps all the branches together of armed forces. But, you know, there's unique differences in terms of duty, honor and mission and, and all that. So uh, that that's important for counselors to recognize that there's a big difference between the branches and uh, then there's difference between enlisted and, and officers. There's a, a difference between, uh, you know, reservists and, and, and you know, that we're talking about uh, the culture and you think about reservists when they come back uh, through their communities, you know, they go back to work for Home Depot and they're, they're not on garrison, so they're sort of disconnected, and they don't have anybody to talk to what their combat experience was like. So, uh, you know, I find you know a lot of reservists have have difficult, more difficulties because they're disconnected from their base. Whereas you come back from deployment and uh, you've got uh, a natural extended family to talk to, guys that understand you. And, you know, the, and I, I see that with a lot of the Marines I, I've, I've treated is that, you know, guys that come home from deployment, uh, they won't want to spend any time with their wives. They're out drinking every night. And the wives just can't understand it. And, yeah, you know, the, you just spent 12 the, months with those guys, nine months with those guys. <laughs> yeah. You know, why, why do you want to continue to hang out with them? Yeah, I hear it all the time, too. Yeah. And so you were talking about spouses and, and uh, families. And so, you know, there's a great need to try to link services uh, with uh, with family members here. So, and of course, you know, a lot of, a lot of, the, a lot of after, active duty Marines I've seen are, uh, you know, they have substance abuse issues because they're out with their unit buddies. And, you know, they, they, don't, they can't talk to their kids about the horrors of war. They can't talk to their spouses. But they sh- certainly can uh, have, share a beer with uh, their unit buddies and, and talk about that. So that, uh, you know, there's, there's some therapeutic value in that. But, you know, when it becomes dysfunctional is when you uh, can't talk to your wife, when you can't relate to your wife. And the wife says, you've changed, you know, you're not the same. And uh, so, you know, that's what's different. We were talking about 80s versus, you know, 2000s. Uh, I think there's more resources for family members. Uh, if command structure uh, recognizes that uh, there is stigma towards, you know, mental health treatment for uh you know soldier sailor marines air, airmen uh, once they realize that stigma they can be a part of of you know intervening and, and reinforcing that it's okay that you go see a counselor yeah i think that that idea of culture in the military i, I absolutely agree um actually as we uh, record this next week i'm going to be presenting at our local va mental health summit here in colorado on cultural competence um, and, mm. and, and how to develop that in, in the different paradigms um, that, that, vet, that uh, clinicians can look at. Sure. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's not something that a lot of 
in, in my experience, maybe a lot of counselors see it as a separate culture, see it as something uh, different, which is, is really, I guess, why um, you developed the uh, Mili- Military and Trauma Counseling Certificate Program at Eastern Carolina University, right? That was sort of the genesis of, of that? Yeah, uh, and I, I saw that people didn't understand, you know, the, some of the cultural differences. What, you know, the, the, I've got five modules to the training uh, for the, uh, the military trauma counseling and the certificate program in uh, clinical military counseling. And, you know, I, I first talk about the cultural aspects of the military, talk about uh, mental health aspects. The medical, the psychosocial, and family aspects, that's a separate module. Uh, vocational rehab, uh, the career transition. And then lastly, the fifth module is, is uh, cultivating resiliency. And uh, so, you know, I, I feel like uh, treating today's vets, you have to integrate the medical, psychosocial, vocational, and mental health aspects and in, in try to uh, adapt that to the culture of the military here because it is such a unique culture. And, the, and uh, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes, too. Uh, with, you know, I see that among employers. They're afraid to hire some vets. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some uh, really good corporations that do a lot for vets. And, uh, of course, the VA's got their, uh, their uh, vocational uh, toolkit, you know, where uh, vets can go ahead and develop some resumes, uh, um, uh, fill out, uh, teach them how to fill out applications, do some job development, uh, and then hook them up with some willing employers. But uh, there, there are certainly stereotypes. I don't know if you've seen that uh, no, in I, your experience. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I was just thinking, uh, and you know, and everybody says, "Oh, you know, that it, it's not universal." But um, mm-hmm. I, I hear anecdotal evidence, and the more you hear anecdotal evidence, um, the 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 greater I guess it gets. Um, in the more real it seems. Uh, I actually had a, uh, a guest post on my uh, website. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes um, by uh-huh. a, a veteran named Garrett Wilkerson. And Garrett had uh, gotten a job, uh, but then he noticed that his, um, his co-workers were kind of starting to treat him differently. You know, like, mm-hmm. oh, if, if you have, uh, you know, let me know if this is going to cause you to have an episode and then you can go, you know, step outside. And he was yeah. like, why, does this normally cause people to have episodes? And, and it turns out that he, he went to his boss and, and he's uh-huh. like, you know, what's going on with this? And they said, yeah, well, we, we just kind of wanted to make sure you weren't one of those weird veterans. Oh, jeez. Um, exactly, that, right? And, and, and you that's, think that... That's all. And, in, in, you know, um, and, and I've had conversations, one of my, my fellow hosts here, you know, talking yeah. about um, if, uh, you know if you've killed someone or, or, or have you ever handled a gun or do you think he could kill somebody? These are the kind of conversations that coworkers would have. Yeah. Whereas if, if the, if the individual was say from the South side of Chicago or from East St. Louis or, mm-hmm. you know, from, from any kind of, uh, you know, um, urban uh, neighborhood there, they wouldn't think about having those kind of conversations because it would be blatantly discriminatory. Yeah. Although mm-hmm. when it comes to veterans, it's not, it, it seems like it's okay. Yeah, and and so it's not so much the veteran, and uh, it it's a lot of the environment and the attitude and the stigma towards veterans. So you know, if we didn't have stigma, if if more employers, uh, more family members, more of the community were educated about veterans, uh, 
that you'd have less of that where the vet would feel like damaged goods when they come back, you know. So the, the problem doesn't reside, as I see it, in vets. It, the problem resides in the, the attitude, the stigma that's attached uh, to the vet when they come back. And then I, I talked about reservists, you know. Um, again, I think that's that's a really a ch- challenging group of uh, uh active service members to work with because no one understands what they've been through. They can't talk to their family, their kids about it, employers. So, um, so there is some advantage of going back to garrison and and talking, uh, talking with your unit buddies. Yeah. I, I, and, and I've, um, I've had some conversations. I actually, the first year, I probably about 11 months or so of my military career was in the reserves. And so I I had a very small taste of that before I went active duty for the rest of my time. But one instance that I remember from when I was deployed always mm-hmm. stuck out in my mind that illustrate how different reserve units were. And we were in Afghanistan uh-huh. and I had a, uh, our, our job was to conduct uh, patrol escorts, uh, security mm-hmm. patrols. And we had some engineers that were attached to us that would help us out every once in a while. And, and mm-hmm. the crew that we always had, I always requested the same crew, but they okay. were literally cousins. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're, you know, um, parents were siblings and they said a third of their unit was related to each other because wow. they came from this small town in Indiana, you know, is the, the, you know, where they were. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, it, it was almost, it was literally a family affair. It's not just, you know, where, where my father and my brother and things served. It's, it's, they yeah. were all literally serving at the same time, which you don't get that in active duty units, right? You don't, that's yeah. not something that, uh, yeah. In fact, happens. they try to, they try to separate them. Yeah. Right. Where, yeah. Whereas in the reserve unit, it's like, I mean, it's like everybody knew you, everybody went to school together. Um, and so that, in, in, in some ways, they were like, well, and we even said that. It was like, how do they let two cousins go out at the same time? And they're like, we don't trust anybody else. You know, we're the one, you know, we, we've known each other for years and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But that's a different aspect. I've, I've talked to some reservists where father and son are in the same unit and make sure that they don't deploy at the same time. And so... It's a different, unique aspect for those that are, you know, again, civilians, quote unquote. Sure. Um, but then they go back and, and it is a totally different, unique culture. And, and I think not a lot of, of course, not a lot of um, uh, non-military people understand that. But then clinicians, um, you know, we're talking about mental health professionals who mm-hmm. are serving veterans. Um, the need is obviously there. And so how does a mental health professional realize, Hey, I need to do some more research. I need to, I need to mm-hmm. understand this client more. Where do you think that comes from? Well, it, you know, it, it comes from comprehensive training to know that, you know, that being in the military isn't just, uh, working with the mental health aspects, but rather there's, uh, there's maybe some physical aspects that, that you need to know about, you know, what, uh, like, uh, amputation, what brain injury is. So it's this, it's this full range of being competent, working with the medical psychosocial adjustment and, uh, and even transition aspects. So, and everything changes from there. I mean, you know, we all have intake interviews that we do, right? So, you know, the typical intake, uh, you know, how old are you? What's highest grade you completed? Where do you work? Are you married, single, divorced? And, you know, we're used to that. But, you know, 
there's extra intake questions that you want to ask, you know, uh, vets. So, you know, I try to train people on, you know, doing the basic intake interview and, you know, like what, what was your MOS? So if you're an Army, Marines, you know, military occupational service, they understand that. Navy, it'd be what's your rate, you know. In uh, Air Force, what's your Air Force specialty code? Uh, so, you know, the language is a little bit different. Uh, you know, where'd you do your basic training? What advanced training do you have? Uh, you know, what experiences do you remember that caused negative and disturbing memories? You know, have you talked to anyone about these experiences before? Were you married at the time of your service or when you were deployed? You know, have you ever sought, uh, uh, sought services from the VA? So I'm given some examples of questions that are probably culturally relevant uh, when you're talking with service members or vets. And, uh, you know, these are may not be able to address all these issues at first session because, you know, I look first session as developing a rapport with somebody. Right. And, uh, and you, you know, uh, after going through a mental health degree, it doesn't matter what, uh, what philosophy, what strategy, what approach that you use. It's all about the rapport. Absolutely. And yeah, you, you'll never get to the working alliance with that, that if you can't establish a rapport and getting in that, inner circle of trust is, is what's important. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not a vet myself, so I, I have to work on that. But I, I think, you know, rapport building uh, is shown through, you know, not only verbal, but through nonverbal, because 75% of what we communicate to each other is done nonverbally. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm real aware of, 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 you know, issues with Marines, with Army, uh, you know, and so knowing a little bit of the language, uh, knowing a, where they came from, uh, some of the questions that I, I just gave you as an example of in the uh, is going to be helpful later on in the session uh, and can help therapeutically because, you know, you want, you know, the standard in traditional community mental health intake is much different than what you're going to do with a vet or a service member. And, you know, the sample questions that I gave, uh, you can get at some rich material. You know, were you married during deployment or, you know, did you get divorced? And, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with a lot of guys where their girlfriend or their wife cheated on them while they're deployed. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they got blown up a couple times. Uh, they got substance abuse issues. This is why we call this complex PTSD because it's not just the mental health disorder. You're working with the physical disorder. Right. You're working with complex grief and loss. You know, uh, you know the, uh, the the spouse or the girlfriend cheated on they. You know they got divorced. So it's multiple losses that you're working with because because of the job. You know the job is so different. And I and I think that that's a, a huge point um, for clinicians who may not be familiar with um, veterans. You know, um, we, we get to the point, we, we all want to help veterans. Yes. Um, we, we love veterans. I'm one, I love myself, right? You know, we, we do that. Um, but if someone is not fully aware, they may only think that PTSD, maybe TBI, maybe uh-huh. those are the only things that they're really familiar with or, yeah. or, okay. They understand that, that veterans drink a lot. Okay. So maybe there's some substance abuse, but that's really sort of the, the limit of their awareness, but they're not familiar with the, um, the learned helplessness that comes from being trapped in a firefight or the mm-hmm. purpose and meaning and the existential theory, you know, uh, Yulam and Frankel kind of thing that, yeah. that they don't, they're not aware of those other aspects. Um, and, and if they don't become aware, then they're not, 
they're not providing as much support for the veteran as the veteran needs, really. Yeah, and you know, you make a great point. It all goes back to culture, is understanding where that person came from, and you know, you can't possibly know that. I've you know worked in a lot of uh, you know uh, civilian trauma, you know, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, school shootings, uh, you know, workplace violence, and you know, worked with a lot of vets too. So it's you can't just treat it, lump it all together as one thing. You really got to know where that person's coming from. And, you know, respond to them with uh, compassion and empathy so they know they've been heard and listened to. And, you know, some of I have uh, a 10th Mountain Ranger I'm working with now, and he likes the fact that I'm not a vet. He says, sure. yeah, I've had I've had vet counselors and especially the VA. All I you know, the psychologists here, all they want to do is analyze me and they want me to talk about my experience at war. He said, I'm sick of talking about it, you know, and, uh, you know, it for him, it's sort of. Uh, is refreshing to to have me in the room, I think. And, uh, you know, I'm not talking, okay, I'll see you at 1,400 hours and, you know. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, uh, it, it, there is that. And I, um, yeah. I, I often ask, and I was going to ask this later, of, uh-huh. um, of, you know, I you obviously don't feel as though someone needs to have served in the military um, to be a, a counselor to a veteran, and, and neither do I. I've had... Um, clients that uh, maybe the the big senior NCO thing wasn't working for them because that maybe been a source of their trauma. That was some of the challenge mm-hmm. they had in the military. So we just we didn't connect, and mm-hmm. so I definitely don't think that um, you have to have been a veteran to have served in the military. Number one, there's not enough of us, you know, especially in uh-huh. current era combat veterans yeah. working in the mental health field. Yeah. Um, but then you are always going to get those veterans who say. Well, I'm not going to talk to anybody unless they've been there, right? You know, so that's from the Correct. veteran side. Yeah. How do you how do you how do you recommend that you know maybe clinicians overcome that or or advice for veterans? Well, you know what I, uh, Dwayne, what I tell folks is that you know when you're in mental health counseling practice, you're dealing with all sorts of issues, people with uh, life threatening uh, illnesses, you know, cancer. You might be talking to somebody that substance abuse. You, you may have not had any of that, so uh, any of those conditions. So, you know, it, it's not, you know, whether you've experienced, you know, that type of uh, that issue as much as it is understanding what the significance of that issue is and how it impacts, you know, the mental, the physical, the spiritual aspect of that of that person. So. Uh, so I, you know, I guess if I had somebody come to me and say, well, you know, how could you possibly understand? Because you've never been in, you've never been a warfighter, and I, my response would be, you're right. You know, I've not been a warfighter. I said, you know, I've got family members that I've, I've learned a little bit about the culture through. Uh, I've talked to a lot of vets that have had a lot of issues that you have right now, and uh, you know, one should be open to the idea that. Possibly I can be of some help here, and let's just try it for one session. If you know if it doesn't work out, then I'll make a referral on to uh, a mental health practitioner that's also a vet. So, you see, that's great because I, I I know that there are people that listen to this, veterans that listen to this, that say there's there's no way I would go to someone who is a, they don't even give the counselor the opportunity to say hey let's try this out for an hour. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> A veteran really doesn't need a reason to avoid mental health counseling. So any reason is a good reason sometimes. Yeah, and you do have to read that because you'll get, you know, 
regardless of veteran status, you know, uh, whoever your client is, there, you know, there's the reluctance, the resistance, and the defensiveness. And, and you know, counselor education, I try to show the three differences here. You know, everybody uh, coming into counseling for the first time, they're going to be a little reluctant. They don't know how the process works. You know, they're talking to a stranger about really private information. So, you know, you got that going for you. So recognize the reluctance. Now then there's resistance, okay? That's stepping it up a notch. Now, resistance is like, hey, you know, you're not a vet, so I don't want to talk with you. And then defensiveness is, you know, is, you know, uh, can we cuss in here? Yeah, that's absolutely not. <laughs> okay, that's, uh, so... Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, you know, fuck you, buddy. You don't know where I've been. Uh, you know, go to hell. Uh, you know, you can't help me. That's defensiveness. So, you know, recognizing uh, kind of the three levels. So if for civilian uh, counselors that's never worked with vets or have little experience with it, I, I would anticipate some reluctance. That's that's pretty natural. Uh, that's natural with building a rapport with any uh, any client. So but, uh, you know, resistiveness uh, takes a different approach is that, hmm, you know, let me, uh, let's see how I can meet your needs maybe from a distance here. If we, if I can't help you in session, then let me hook you up with some resources. So anyway, you, you, know, you get the idea is what I'm trying to communicate here, I think, is that, uh, you know, there are some vets listening and, uh, uh, you know, I guess I would challenge them to, uh, to try to break through the stigma of, you know, mental health counseling, because you may come into somebody that uh, you actually have a good rapport with and maybe can help you out. And, you know, it's, it's your, it's your time, it's your dime. You can go uh, therapy shop uh, or shop for a therapist. And, you know, I, I think that's important for somebody to do is, is, you know, it's like when you're not going to buy the first car you see, right? You're going to go look around at different dealers and different cars. So, you know, this is your life you're talking about. But, yeah. No, as, you know. as I often explain it to uh, the veterans uh, that I work when I when I'm faced with that, and people just say, "Oh, I, you know, I tried therapy and it didn't work out." When my my <laughs> wife and I first moved here, um, mm-hmm. and we were looking to buy a house. We didn't really like the realtor that mm-hmm. that we first started working with, but we still needed yeah. to buy a house, right? We still needed a place to live. Yeah. And so we went and found another realtor because the house needed to be bought. Um, you know, if the, the engine's not working and I don't like my mechanic, I need to continue to find the mechanic yeah. because the, the, the problem still needs to be solved. And, and I think that's a, a really, a lot of people think this is just a one shot deal. If it, 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 it didn't work one time and it'll never work. Um, sure. and so it's, it's good to hear. I mean, even then I recognize, and, and it sounds mm-hmm. like you do as well. Not every clinician is a fit for every client and we right. have a responsibility to help that client um, maybe at the expense of ourselves as far as, you know, ego or whatever, but just to be mm-hmm. able to say, you know what, I'm not the one that's going to fix everyone. Let me find right. somebody who's going to help you. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've got some friends that work at vet centers and, you know, they do a great job here in, I know in North Carolina is connecting, uh, with vets and with services and all that. And, uh, so, you know, it, it's finding the right match and, but, you know, there, there's reluctance and resistance, uh, to go to a counselor, if, if that's the case, you know, talk to your priest, talk to your rabbi, talk to your minister, talk to an elder family member. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, this licensed clinical professional, you know, uh, but, 
you know, if you truly have issues that you're dealing with, suicide ideation, depression, uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, you know, talk to somebody, get help from somewhere. Yeah, telling that story is is huge. Getting over the well, not telling the story is even bigger than telling the story. But uh, and and I, I recall from my uh, own experience, my stepfather's father, so my grandfather on that side, uh-huh. um, I had been in the I had been in Germany, and so I'd been in the army at least two or three years, um, uh-huh. and I went back home, and he starts telling me about this story about how um, he and some of his buddies were switching road signs in France, you know, after they jumped in, and I said, wait a minute. You were there, and he was like, oh, D-Day plus two or something. And I'm like, how did, you know, at this time, I'm like, you know, 19, 20 years old, and yeah. I never even knew he served. But then, you know, and, and really it was just he and I sitting in the living room, and, you know, and he was, but he was like, yeah, I only tell the funny stories. But but it was it was like that, that I didn't know for 20-something years of my life that he had served. My mm-hmm. father, the same way, uh, Vietnam, I didn't, you know, of course I knew it was there, but he never actually... And you mentioned talking about the the change in the wife, uh, the spouse, and things like that. Uh-huh. I, I recall one of the first things that he said to me after my I, I was home before I was going to deploy to Iraq the first time, and he sat down uh-huh. sort of face to face, and he was like, "You need to talk to your wife. You need to talk to you know don't mm-hmm. don't hide anything. You know, be open." Because he was like, "That's the one thing that kind of went wrong between me and your mom as I held it in." And by that time, I was in my 30s before he, you know, really first started um, discussing that kind of thing. And so it's hard for veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, as somebody once told me it's it's easier to kick down doors than talking about kicking down doors. <laughs> how do you how do you suggest veterans get over that hump of 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 not telling the story? Wow, uh, you know that that's a big one. How do you how do you get the the hump of not telling the story? So, uh, well. You, I what I learned is is don't jump into the story right off. Yes, you know, absolutely. Just, and uh, you know you gotta to start a res- rapport and get in that circle of trust. You gotta know that you know uh, how to relate you know verbally and non-verbally with that individual. Uh, we, you know I think of a, a vet that I uh, this this is an army vet. He uh, he got uh, he got he got blown up about three times he's medically discharged and uh medically separated he uh he was talking it 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 took me six sessions with him before he told me what happened how he got blown up and uh, some of his experiences you know he was in a daisy chain uh id explosion in some humvees he uh you know you've heard the you you've experienced you know these war stories yourself probably and mm-hmm. uh and it was pretty horrible he had he took his uh, uh his driver out and he pulled him out of the humvee he didn't have any legs attached you know both of them had been crushed and separated so uh he didn't want to talk about this with me uh the first session so you know we spent the first six sessions talking about girlfriend problems he had uh that was a big issue with him trying to uh, you know, develop the interpersonal skills for dating and, uh, you know, how, how can he get back to school? You know, it, it wasn't anything about, you know, uh, combat, combat uh, right. exposure to combat. So uh, I guess, you know, one, one advice I have with, uh, you know, civilian counselors who are working with militaries, don't jump right into, you know, so uh, how many times you've been blown up and, uh, you know, what happened to you over there? You know, you, you don't want to yeah. sit through war stories. 
I think that's a yeah, that's a that's a really good uh, advice. Is you know, and mm-hmm. and maybe you know, some clinicians say, hey, I, I need to know. Well, you need to know sort of when they're they're ready to tell you. I have a little mm-hmm. bit of the opposite um, experience, although approach the same as, you know, mm-hmm. I my office is like a retired first sergeant's office, right? I've got <laughs> maps on the walls and there's, I mean, it's military. I mean, and, it, and it's in, in guys coming and they feel comfortable. But one of the things I yeah. see is they want to sit down and on the first day, they want to start telling me about the worst day of their lives. They're so mm-hmm. eager to like, oh man, you get it. Yeah, man, this was here. I, I actually had a Vietnam veteran that I got a map of Vietnam on, on the wall and he hadn't seen, he hadn't looked at a map in Vietnam in 20 something years. And yeah. so he spent the whole, he was like, oh, is it? And I have to tell them the same thing as, well, let's slow down. Let's let's get some mm-hmm. skills on how to handle these kind of, let's you and I get to know each other a little bit before you jump right into that kind of, you know, really highly emotional thing. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. get to that point. But let's make sure that both, you know, that, that you're okay getting there. And so it's, it's good to hear that, that not jumping right in. And that gives the veteran permission. And, and I think it's also, I mean, not a, not a test as in I'm testing you, but it's a, yeah. it's just to say, hey, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some of my trust. And, and if you handle that, I'll give you more and I'll give you more. Yeah. And you bring up a really important point. A great point is that it's counseling readiness. You know, some guys are ready to jump in and, you know, you know, I had a guy first session, he starts telling me uh, he, you know, his mission was to uh, not kill and cap, not capture and kill, but capture, put him in a, a storage bin and torture and uh, try to get information out of him. So, you know, he was delving right into that. Uh, and uh, so uh, I, I was, I just sat and listened and then we started working with it uh, uh, on trying to set goals for, <laughs> as opposed to just jumping right into the, the worst day, like you said, the worst day of your life, you know. Like that, so you, you, your point of uh, counseling readiness is is important for counselors to understand, and I guess for vets themselves is to know that you know you don't have to come in, lay down on the couch, and start telling about talking about the worst day of your life. Yeah, no, and that's the and and I and that's really the and you mentioned it before about how everybody has this conceived notion of what treatment is, and I think that one of the reasons why I agreed to start doing this podcast and why the blogs and and I, I think you with your books would agree is, we as clinicians don't do a very good job about getting out and talking about this, talking mm-hmm. about what therapy is and what it can do and the benefit. We, yeah. a, a colleague of mine says, you know, we were convinced of the greatness of our product and it happens behind mm-hmm. closed doors. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it's it, you think it's beneficial to get the word out? Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Uh, to get the word out and then uh, to really kind of describe therapy is, you know, just starting a relationship with somebody that you're comfortable with uh, and feeling this safety and trust to be able to talk to this person. And just to know that you don't have to talk about your deepest, deepest, darkest secrets, but, you know, talk at the level you feel most comfortable about right now. And, you know, don't push for, you know, now if you, you know, if you're working in an insurance guidelines and you only got six sessions with this person, then, you know, that's, you're going to have to work fast to develop rapport then. You know, I think that's, (laughs) that's a reality to, uh, to, but, uh, you know, vet centers don't have to worry about that sort of thing or the VA and, uh, you know, I, I, I had a vet client that had a lot of good things to say about the VA. He, he said, you know, the VA, uh, the counselor he had saved his life. You know, he's, he's highly suicidal. 
and, and I agree. You know, I, I've come to to realize um, that uh, uh, separate VAs, it's like being a military post, right? You know, Fort Carson is one of the top 10 places people want to go, but Fort Bliss and Fort Polk aren't in the same, you know, uh, maybe yeah. somebody people want to come to Camp Lejeune, right? Uh, but but 29 Palms is not it, it's quite. It's the beach. Yeah. yeah. The beach um, but, versus desert. Yeah. So, so people just, you know, and, and you have different situations, but every really, you know, wants to, to identify that. I have some, some very respected colleagues that I, um, as you mentioned, the vet center here, I um, know the vet center have um, colleagues there. I have colleagues at our main VA here that are, are very passionate, very skilled yeah. um, and very capable. Um, yeah. And it goes back to that of, uh, you know, if you, if the person you're not, you're working with doesn't work for you, then, uh, then find someone else. Yeah. And don't blame it on, well, the counseling didn't work for me. You know, go find somebody that you can connect with. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's what's important. And it, you know, may not be a counselor, maybe, uh, another unit buddy or something that's got life together, you know, has got kids and a family and has a kind of a normal life, you know? So, uh, before we, I, I do want to talk about the, uh, the certificate program. So this is, this sure. isn't a master's program, but this is a, a national certification in uh, clinical military counseling. Now this is separate from the, the MTC that you, you did it at, uh, Eastern Carolina university. Yeah, it is. You know, I developed the, uh, the military trauma counseling certificate at ECU in 2015 and uh, it, it, to me, it didn't go far enough. I mean, the university will issue a certificate, but uh, I got the, uh, the state of North Carolina, the Licensed Professional Counseling Association, interested in this back in 2016. So we trained about 220 LPCs and, uh, in, in this uh, particular program, and I, uh, I built it through... Uh, working with uh, other vets and some active duty service members and put together sort of a focus group and, and asking them, you know, what do you think would be, uh, what do you think would be good topics to train? And, uh, you know, can I use you as a guest speaker for this, uh, you know, two day workshop and so forth. So, you know, I, I using the state as, as a launching pad for this national now uh, was really helpful because I was able to get the input uh, from content experts in different areas, uh, build it up. And I decided, well, you know, the, the five modules that I mentioned before are really important. Uh, it's not just the mental health aspects, but it's the medical, the psychosocial, the vocational, career transition, and the mental health and the cultural aspects. So uh, I, I got uh, ECU uh, Office of Continuing Studies interested in doing a national certificate. So what I've developed is an all online certificate and we can do this also as a one day workshop and then uh, one day of online training. It's a 12 uh, clock hour certificate and, uh, and I've got a, a blackboard site set up. It's got uh, guest speakers with videos. It's got uh, readings, PowerPoint slides, and it's, just chock full of resources for counselors, psychologists, social workers. So I've expanded it to marriage and family, you know, uh, and, you know, I find there's many different providers that, that are now working with vets. And, uh, so it's important to bring them in and try to, uh, indoctrinate them into, you know, the military culture and translating what they already know about their field, but translating that into, uh, the military culture uh, 
terminology in terms of assessment, diagnosis, and treatment. So, you know, this certificate really uh, works well with uh, uh, how you do uh, assessment, diagnosis, and treatment a little bit differently uh, with military culture, okay? So that's, uh, in a nutshell, that's a brief history of where the uh, certification came from, where it's headed right now. I, I really like that because, in, and I recognize um, as a, a clinician myself that um, we know the modalities, we know the, the therapeutic interventions that work for, um, you know, lack of purpose and meaning. I mean, you know, that's uh-huh. the entire, you know, concept of existential psychology or, you know, uh, Brett Litz and adaptive disclosure addressing moral injury in, in family uh-huh. systems. And so we yeah. as clinicians have the experience and have the training in these modalities, but we don't realize that how to apply that to the veteran, you know, yeah. so the veteran's experience. So there, there is this gap um, that that clinicians, if they're not fully aware of how to bridge that gap, then really both the veteran and the clinician come away unsatisfied. Yeah, so we get we get to real specifics about we do suicide assessment differently. Talk about that because you know people really freak out with vets. We were talking about earlier in the in the podcast about uh, stereotypes and stigma associated, and uh, you know, so you know we we, we treat uh, suicide uh, assessments a little bit differently. You know, uh, and there's some therapists that that are anti-gun. You know, it's crazy to think about. You know, some civilian. Uh, counselors that are anti-gun. So, you know, you're going to have to address, you know, the culture in which the person lives. And, you know, you're going to have to put aside some of your own ideological beliefs, I think. No, and that's something that I I often tell uh, clinicians. You you might learn things about military culture that you don't like, and that's okay. And if you don't feel as though you want to work with this particular population, I'm sure there's a population that you would want to work. So don't don't pigeonhole yourself into, um, you know, I work a a lot, a a significant Mm -hmm. amount with justice-involved veterans. And Mm. and, and I had some colleagues to be like, well, I don't want to work with criminals. (laughs) <laughs> probably shouldn't work with these veterans then because you should not, you, you know. shouldn't be in human service well there is help. yeah there was <laughs> I don't, you can't pick and choose you can't cherry pick you yeah, know i this, don't you know. I, I don't have conversations with those colleagues much anymore <laughs> but 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 yeah so the, i mean and, and there is that you know and, and maybe not to perpetuate the stereotype like, oh where well, that's judgmental i mean humans are humans and clinicians are humans too you know i mean it's we make mistakes and we all have our our own, you know, um, ideas. And that's one of the big things about, um, being professional counselors, the ability to set that aside, like you said, mm-hmm. well, this has been a great conversation, Mark. I really appreciate that. If, if, uh, I'm going to have a link to the, um, the, the certificate, uh, the CCMC website. Um, Excellent. I found that I'm going to put that in the snow show notes. Uh, but maybe if a clinician, uh, who's interested in learning more, how would they get a hold of you and, and, Learn more. Sure. Well, uh, best way to get a hold of me would be uh, through email. That's M at ecu.edu. So it's my last name uh, with the initial M at ecu.edu. And then uh, also have phone of 252-744-6295 is the office phone if you want to talk. And uh, I, I really appreciate what you're doing here, uh, Dwayne. I can't thank you enough. You've, you know, you've given me another resource for my uh, CCMC training, and you're, you're now, <laughs> your, your website is now part of 
you know, this training here that I do because it's, it's, it's invaluable. It's, it's great. It's unique. I well, appreciate, I appreciate you having that. me on. It's, uh, I, it's somehow I've, I found myself in unique positions uh, a lot um, in my life. Um, and this isn't hanging off the side of a mountain. So I'm pretty cool with it. <laughs> so, no, I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, and, and I'll make sure that, uh, that you get a link whenever the show goes live. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put that on the training website, definitely. All right, bye for now. Looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.